Well, good morning. Very thankful for the opportunity to be with you all here at Grace Presbyterian. I'm thankful for uh, this church on a lot of different levels. Uh, we have shared in, in, in gospel ministry together, the Fresno Clovis area, the community. Um, your, your previous pastor, Pastor Brad Mills, and I go back well over 30 years uh, when he was still in college and uh, a number of families in this congregation we're very thankful for out at Highview Bible Church as uh, you've brought your youth to take part in our youth ministry and we, uh, my own children have benefit, benefited from the relationship shared with a number of your children and we're just thankful for uh, the discipleship that takes place in these walls at this church and in these homes represented at, uh, here at Grace Presbyterian. So um, very thankful. Uh, for uh, our relationship and, and gospel partnership. And I uh, realize and recognize um, the Lord is at work even now to uh, bring on uh, someone who would uh, uh, join your leadership and, and shepherd this congregation. Uh, and uh, we just look forward to God's faithfulness in that area for this church as well. Uh, I've been pastoring in this area for uh, over 23 years. Um, I am one of the uh, three preaching pastors at Highview Bible Church. Uh, I've got uh, nine children. Uh, I've got one wife. Um, uh, make sure that's clear. Um, four of our kids have, have flown the coop, so we only have five at home. So my wife Amy and I kind of feel like empty nesters these days with, with only seven of us around the dinner table. Um, but I wish I could be with us here this morning and, and uh, um, perhaps in a future. Next week's potluck. I, I had to come next week and uh, bring the family, but uh, they might eat it all. So, uh, well, please take out your, your, your copy of God's Word. And uh, it is a privilege to open it with you. Um, turn to the book of Psalms, in particular, Psalm 73. And as you turn there, I want to introduce this morning's text by recalling to mind the words of the great hymn, Come Thou Fount. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. They call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it, the mount of thy redeeming love. I love the hymns. I love this particular hymn. And it's that first verse that gives us an amazing picture of our great God being this mount. Our praiseworthy God is a strong mountain, a solid rock upon which we are fixed. And that the mount of our wonderful God is one of redeeming love. I hope you're fixed on this great mount of our wonderful God. I hope you know of this redeeming love. But if you know this hymn, 
There's a third verse of Come Thou Fount that couples together with this high view of who our God is, our wonderful God, it couples together that struggling reality of those who are fixed on this very mount of our great God and his redeeming love. The hymn writer pens these words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Please take, take and seal it and seal it for your courts. Above us, those who are fixed on this mount of our great God, we know we are indebted to grace. We know there's nothing better in this universe than the grace of our God, known through the gospel of his son, the good news. We, we ought to be constrained, continually constrained to this very grace of God. And yet, alas, we are prone to wander. It's your hearts, it's my heart. Our hearts, they're, they're, they're wandering hearts. And we're, we're prone to leave this God we love. And to be clear, to be sure, this is not a reflection of any inability on God's part to keep his children. Rather, it's this very real truth of the hymn's third verse that is a revealing testimony of our own weak and our own wandering hearts. And so the hymn writer knows that the only hope of being fixed on this very mount of God and his redeeming love is to have the grace of God like a fetter, like a binding chain, like restraining shackles that bind our wandering hearts to him. Perhaps you know what it is like to have a wandering heart. I know I do. And it's more often than I care to admit. How is it, church, that, 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 that in one moment we are on the right path? And then the very next moment we're wandering off that very path and we go astray. How is it that in one moment we're, we're standing firm on solid ground and then in the next moment we find ourselves slipping how is it that in one moment we are steadily running this race, Hebrews chapter 12, right? And in the next moment, we find ourselves stumbling. Well, the text at hand today will take a little closer look at this issue of wandering, of straying, of slipping, and even stumbling. Psalm 73 will highlight that which causes the human heart to stumble, the text is going to focus on some very specific items that can cause us to wander, to stray, to slip, and to stumble. But in addition to highlighting this very reality of struggle, I'm so thankful 
that the psalmist will also point us to the solution. Psalm 73 will not leave us in the dark. While we will see pervasive throughout this chapter this utter darkness of the human heart, there will be this amazingly stark contrast with the glorious light of our wonderful God and how he overcomes our darkness. The context of this morning's passage, it's found in the first two verses of Psalm 73. Please listen and follow along as I read. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So the context of Psalm 73 is this testimony of the psalmist. And the text is clear. The psalmist knows the Lord. He knows the Lord well. He knows the Lord intimately. The psalmist knows our wonderful God. And he knows God with great conviction. When he begins with truly, he's communicating in essence, what I'm about to tell you is the truth. There is no doubt in my mind. I am thoroughly convinced of this truth. God is good. Our wonderful God is good. He's good to Israel. He's good to his people. He's good to his children. Our God is good to those who are pure in heart. And then in verse 2, the psalmist gives honest testimony about himself and that he is someone whose feet had almost stumbled. He is someone whose steps had nearly slipped. We could be done right here with verses 1 and 2 because Psalm 73, 1 and 2 really is a great pattern of sound and solid and biblical theology. Theology that sets a high and a holy view of our great God, and that is coupled together with a low and a humble view of man. And in all likelihood, sound and solid biblical theology stems from those two converging because when we have a high view of God, and that's contrasted with a low view of ourselves and others, that sets the stage for Christ and the good news of his gospel to be seen as most glorious. The psalmist is a good theologian. He knows the truth. The truth that our wonderful God is altogether good. He humbly knew the truth as well about his own weak, his own wandering heart. So here's my hope for the rest of this text as we move into this time of exposition of the rest of Psalm 73. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God would take this, the word of God, and would use it to point us to a high view of God so that you and I would be humbled before the holy throne of God in order that the eyes of our wandering hearts would once again be pointed to the all-surpassing glorious gospel of the Son of God. Listen as I have the privilege of continuing to read in God's word. Follow me as I uh, uh, read verses 3 through 12. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with Follies, they scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. If you're taking any sort of notes today and you wanted uh, four just thoughts that you could just follow along structurally uh, throughout this time in Psalm 73, the psalmist begins by looking outward. That's where we are right here. He looks outward, then he'll look inward, then he'll look upward, and then he'll look forward. If you want to think structurally about where we're headed with this, outward, inward, upward, forward. He starts by looking outward. I was envious of the wicked. Instead of having his heart fixed on who God is and his goodness, the psalmist looks outward. Have you found yourself doing this very thing, church? You're walking closely with the Lord. And then for whatever reason, you take your eyes off of him and you begin looking outward at other things and other people and things of this world. This can happen easily online. You could be reading just something benign, an email, or you could be reading scripture on your device, and, and then all of a sudden your mind and your eyes begin to wander, and you scroll somewhere else, and you click that. How amazing how the psalmist can really be a reflection of you and me. It's like Peter in Matthew chapter 14 when he is walking on the water with our Lord. You know the story. He's doing fine. He's doing fine walking toward the Savior until what? He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to look around and outward at the storm, the winds and the waves. Well, the psalmist here in Psalm 73 takes his eyes off the Lord. He sets his sights outward and upon the arrogant and upon the wicked and he begins to envy them. Envy. The psalmist begins to envy the way the wicked prosper. Envious here in the Hebrew is, is to be provoked unto jealousy. As someone who knows the Lord, doesn't the psalmist know he's supposed to flee from the wicked? The psalmist is supposed to be just turned off by arrogant people. Aren't believers supposed to even feel pity for those who don't know the Lord? Well, the psalmist here is a good reminder that, that when our hearts wander, they begin to behave in a contrary way to the way they should. They do the opposite of what God has called us to do. Instead of thinking rightly about the wicked and about the arrogant, Believers can slip and stumble to the point of actually becoming envious and jealous of the world. Verses 4 to 12, the psalmist is going to give us some specific reasons for his envy and for his jealousy. For starters, 
He says, the wicked have no pangs. You see that in verse 4? You know what pangs here is? It's the idea of binding fetters. Fetters. Does that sound familiar? That's the same term that we just talked about in the hymn of our introduction earlier. The child of God knows we have wandering hearts and that we need God to bind us with the fetters of his grace, as it were. And yet, when believers are in the state of wandering away from God, finding ourselves looking at the wicked, we seem to think they're living the good life. Why? Because they are not bound by pangs. We seem to think they have an easier life because they are not fettered nor constrained. Furthermore, the wicked don't seem to have troubles because they're not stricken like the rest of us as a psalmist would lament here in verse 5. So we see this on our screens all the time. We read about it um, in the news, but we see these wealthy folks, whether they, they've gathered their wealth from, from a biz, successful business or, or athletes who get paid just amazing amounts of money, or these actors and actresses that are in high demand. That there's something in us that moves us to envy, that moves us to jealousy. It's as if their lives are entirely free from trouble, whereas our lives are constantly burdened with trial. As the psalmist continues his outward look at the wicked, he sees their bodies are fat and that their eyes swell out through fatness requires a little clarification here. These terms fat and fatness, verse 4, verse 7, uh, modern American day context doesn't help. He's not envying people because they are physically heavier than he is. But in Hebrew context here, we see fat and we understand fatness to be considered so positive because the poor of this time were so thin, they were malnourished, they were emaciated, they were unhealthy due to the fact that good food and good meals were meager and hard to come by. The wealthy, on the other hand, they had a full and a bountiful supply of food. They didn't have to wonder where their next meal was coming from. They had the choicest of meats, delect delectable foods that the poor could never afford. So hence, very, very positive reference to fat and fatness here in Psalm 73. Verse 6, the psalmist uses very picturesque terms in reference to the wicked and the arrogant. He sees, he refers to them using these terms of clothing. Adorning their necks is this necklace of pride. As for the garments they, they, they don, they're wearing violence. And as the psalmist is looking outward at all these wicked folk, he is struggling with the thought. How is it that the proud and the cocky who are, who are clothing themselves with violence, how do they prosper so much? Why is this? Why is it that their lives seem so much better than mine? 
Then in verses 8 to 10, the psalmist refers to the speech of the wicked and that the speech of the wicked is malicious. It is threatening even as it speaks out against heaven. The end of verse 9, he says, their tongue struts through the earth. Very, very vivid reflection of boastful pride. Even to this extent of questioning God himself. Look at verse 11. God, what does he know about anything? And due to, to all the psalmist is observing as he's looking outwardly at the wicked, he concludes with this very solemn thought in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. You ever think to yourself those thoughts? You ever contemplate why the wicked prosper so much? Well, after looking at the wicked and the arrogant, you would think the psalmist would be ready to refocus his eyes on, on the Lord, right? But as we'll see in verses 13 to 16, the psalmist is going to go from looking outward to looking inward. Listen, follow along as I read verses 13 to 16 of Psalm 73. All in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I believe verses 13 to 16 is super important to note, especially for those of us who tend to internalize matters when we go through challenging times. When some people struggle with, with slipping and stumbling, there is that propensity in them to look inward and to become seriously and overly introspective. A word to the wise church. Focusing our sights inward can be just as dangerous and just as destructive as looking outward. One of the most dangerous and destructive aspects of becoming overly introspective is self-pity. You see how the psalmist becomes engrossed in himself? Look at verse 13. Here I am trying to live upright. I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to, to live a life of innocence. I've tried to keep this nose and this heart clean. And you know what? Seems like I'm just doing it all in vain. Not only do the wicked and the arrogant prosper, but what's worse, the righteous and the innocent suffer. Look at verse 14. Psalmist contrasts himself with worldly people. The wicked and the arrogant, they don't have a care in the world. Believers are the ones who are stricken and rebuked. Verse 15, the psalmist, he kind of catches himself in verse 15. During this introspective self-pity party, he, he seems to just kind of gather himself a little bit to have this little brief flash of rationality. He says to himself, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your, of your children. In other words... 
Here's what the psalmist is saying in verse 15. Lord, if I would have simply just blurted out and expressed my frustrations out loud, I would have betrayed others by leading them astray. So I guess if there is any redeeming quality about being overly introspective, it's that we keep our angst to ourselves. Instead of dragging others into the pit of pity with us, we keep it to us. But with that said, focusing inward is still just as dangerous and destructive as focusing outward. The answers to life's struggles are not found within. Introspectively search as you may with all your might. Inevitably, as you look within, you will find yourself becoming tired and weary. Oftentimes, what will end up happening is you uncover more questions than you do answers. Not to mention the potential of blurting out your frustrations without discretion to the point of adversely affecting others. It's kind of like that lid on the proverbial pot of water that's boiling in and the lid is tightly capped. It's just a matter of time until all that pressure just explodes, potentially injuring yourself, scalding those around you. Look at what the psalm, psalmist says. As he finds within himself, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So in verses 3 to 12, Psalmist looked outward, focused on the wicked and the arrogant to the point of becoming envious and, uh, envious and jealous of them. Verses 13 to 16 here, Psalmist looks inward, focused introspectively as he's searching for answers within. If the passage were to end here, at the end of verse 16, and uh, I would call up your elders to close our service now, that would be terribly discouraging, wouldn't it? To experience the harsh realities of life, Psalm 73, 1 through 16, that could just lead to great discouragement. But to experience these harsh realities of life without any sense of hope, that's not just discouraging, that's despair. And hope is what begins to pierce the darkness here as we pick up in verse 17. The psalmist receives hope. He goes from looking outward to looking inward. And now we find the psalmist looking upward. Follow along as I read verses 17 to 27. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing that on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, 
Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, the psalmist finds his hope by looking upward. And by upward, you know what I mean by that. That's not a physical direction, of course. By looking upward, that is to refer to God above, our Lord, the one whom Jesus uh, would pray, our Father who art in heaven. We look upward to our God. The psalmist had to refocus his vision. He had to stop looking outward at others. He had to stop looking inward for the answers. And he had to shift his focus to the one enthroned. The one enthroned, the sovereign king, the God only wise, the one who sees all and knows all. And to our wonderful God who works all things for his glory, his pleasure, and for the good of his people. You know, it's been said sometimes the Lord has to just put us flat on our backs so that the only direction you and I can look is up at him. When the psalmist looks upward to the Lord, it gives him perspective. He would be reminded of the truths, the things he knew to be true. Remember how the psalmist began this psalm? Truly, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He had to be reminded. That's the truth. God is good. He's good to his children. He's good to those pure in heart. Regardless of how our eyes of our hearts struggle to see this truth, regardless of how the eyes of our hearts find it hard to see in the world's darkness, regardless of how the eyes of our hearts are even blinded at times from seeing the goodness of God, regardless of any impaired vision whatsoever, God is good. God is good to his people. God is good regardless if you and I perceive his goodness at any given time. Our inability to have clear vision does not affect the clarity and the brilliance of our wonderful God and his great goodness. In addition, the psalmist is reminded that the converse is also true. If God is good to his people, God's Holy wrath will be unleashed upon his enemies. At the end of verse 17, we read of how it becomes clear to the psalmist as he, with clarity, discerns the end of the wicked. In verses 18 to 20, he, he details out this very, very chilling, frightening picture of how God will indeed deal with the wicked. The Lord sets them in slippery places. He makes them fall to ruin. In a moment, he will destroy them, sweeping them away utterly by terrors. There is a terrifying despise God has for the wicked. The wicked and the arrogant will understand the timeless biblical truth that is found in Hebrews chapter 10, that it is indeed a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The psalmist is reminded of how foolish it is, how foolish it is to, to envy the wicked, to be jealous of the arrogant, and how you and I can find ourselves just as guilty as a psalmist here. 
as we find ourselves being envious and jealous of those who will inevitably know the swift and terrifying destruction. Reminds me of this concept. Perhaps you've heard this. Reminds me of the thought, if kites could talk. If a kite could talk, perhaps it might say, here we go again. I'm going upward to float and fly alongside the birds. I'm elevated by these winds. But frankly, I'm getting a little tired of this string. Look at the birds. They don't have any strings attached to them. Birds can go where they want. They can fly where they want. They can land where they want. But woe is me, might say the kite. Here I am tethered by the string. And then there's this person down there. The person who's holding the string. I'm at his whim. He puts me up in the sky whenever he wants. He reels me back in whenever he wants. I'm kind of getting tired of this life. Look at those birds. Those birds fly so free. I want to soar with them. I want to go where, they want, where, where I want. I want to fly wherever I want to fly. I'd give anything to sever this string that fetters me and limits my freedom if kites could talk. Would they reflect the very foolishness of a wandering heart? A wandering heart like that of the psalmist. Would a kite reflect the discontent of our own wandering hearts? Well, you don't have to be a physicist or any kind of kite expert to know that when a kite is in flight, that a severed string would not be a good thing. That just doesn't end well. That any thoughts of feel-good floating freedom is a big fat lie. Because it's only a matter of time until wind and gravity cause that kite to come crashing down. Well, in verses 21 and 22, the psalmist would recount this foolishness of, of looking inward when my soul was embittered. I was pricked in my heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The psalmist is basically saying in those verses, I I've looked inside. I've looked inside my heart and my soul for answers, and all I found in there is bitterness. You ever find yourself doing that? You just get so wrapped up in here, and you end up just becoming bitter. Oh, Lord. At times, I, I act more like an animal, the psalmist is saying, rather than a person who's been made in your glorious image. And then verses 23 to 27, the psalmist goes on this extended expression of praise and worship, reflecting on how wonderful our God is. God is wonderful in that his, his faithfulness, the intimate love in which he shows toward his children, verse 23. And then verse 24 reflects on how wonderful God is in, in his guidance and in his wise counsel, and how at the end of all things, our wonderful God will take his children home to him in glory. 
Verse 25, the psalmist reflects how, how desperate he is for this wonderful God. And that when he is understood rightly, the things of this world just pale in comparison to him. Verse 26, he contrasts his own lowliness with the greatness of our wonderful God. And as you and I continually struggle with, with failure, it really is God who remains strong. He is the one who alone supplies us with the strength we need. The wicked may have all the stuff this world has to offer, but for those who belong to God, he himself is our portion. God is our portion. Echoing what David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Because he's my shepherd, I shall not want. In all the discontentment of life, may the Lord be our all-satisfying portion. And how utterly foolish it is for us to, to envy the wicked and to be jealous of the arrogant. According to verse 27, those far from God, they're going to perish. The Lord will put an end to all who are unfaithful to him. Well, as the author concludes his thoughts in the 73rd Psalm, we have found him looking outward, then inward, and then upward, and he closes by looking forward. Listen to the final verse of Psalm 73. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell that I may go forth and tell, I, I want to share this news. I want to live my life reflecting and proclaiming and declaring and living out the glories of my wonderful God. He's looking forward. He knows, the psalmist knows there's no better place on earth than to be near his God. No safer place on earth than to know God as his refuge. And as a result, he looks forward to telling others, to sharing this good news, the evangel, the, the, the good news that needs to be taken to the ends of the earth. When the psalmist was busy looking at the world, when he was busy looking introspectively for answers, evangelism, gospel proclamation, and missions were the last things on his mind. But when he enters the sanctuary of God, he realizes, again, the folly, the destruction of the wicked. He realizes the senselessness of looking within. And that the only way to keep his heart from wandering is to keep his focus on who God is. And that our only hope in this life and in the next is found by looking upward to him and to him alone. As a result of finding refuge in God's sanctuary... He looks forward to telling others, others whose hearts might be wandering off. Spouses, encourage your spouse whose heart might be wandering these days to enter into the sanctuary of God. Encourage the children in your home that when life is tough, what we do is we enter the sanctuary of God. We go to the one who loves us with an everlasting love in Christ. Well, as we conclude our time in the text today, I, I hope um, your looking outward and your looking inward has made you weary 
That's the work of the Spirit, you know. It's the work of the Spirit to, when you taste of the world, to give you bitterness in your mouth, to give you weariness in your bones, so that you wouldn't hunger and thirst for things of this world, but it would turn you to our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you not long to, to be fixed, groundly fixed, firmly fixed, on, on solid ground, on the mount of our wonderful God? Do you not desire to be at the foot of the one through whom all creation is maintained and sustained and it endures? Will you not seek your greatest satisfaction in the God who holds together every atomic particle and every fragment of molecular matter in the palm of his infinitely powerful hand? Do you not hunger and thirst for the love of our wonderful God who loves his children in Christ? In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I'll close with these words. Our Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor, who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, will you not turn your eyes upon Jesus Will you not look full into his wonderful face so that all the things of this earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Let's pray together. Father, you truly are good. You are good in your character, and you are graciously good to your children. And yet, Father, you know the eyes of our hearts, they, they just tend to wander Forgive us for looking outwardly. Forgive us for the envy and the jealousy we have for those in this world, for the godless. Forgive us for looking inwardly for answers, thinking that uh, if we just search deep enough, we'll, we'll know why things are, are happening the way they are. But God, you are so gracious to us. Your spirit is powerful to, to wean um, our wandering hearts away from this world and from ourselves and to attach us and to fetter us and to, and to tie us to your son, Jesus. Keep us in the palm of your hand. Keep us near, God, even when we stray. Draw us back continually. Thank you for being a patient God, a loving father whose patience does not grow thin but because of your love for us in Christ, you love us with a perfect and an everlasting fatherly love. Thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.